If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Genesis once again. A pivotal passage in the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis as we look together in Genesis chapter 32. Now we're covering, we're going to cover two full chapters this morning. So that clock up there says 1138, right? So I've got to be done in order for my wife to have an informational woman about a meeting about a women's trip and she's supposed to have that meeting at 1248. So I've got one hour and 10 minutes by, is that right? No? Okay. All right. I've got to be done so she can have her meeting. And, and here's, the, here's the cool thing. We're going to make it work. You ready? Genesis chapter 32 is where we're going to be this morning. And I'm going to ask you to look with me, if you will, at just a few verses out of these two chapters. And we're going to walk back through. We're going to contextualize. We're going to talk. We're going to go back to the old format of, of here's the narrative. Here's the main point, And then here's how we're going to apply it to our heart. But look with me, if you will, in verse 24. It says this. Jacob was alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw, he, Jacob, saw that he had not, excuse me, when he, the man, saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. And so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And the man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. The man said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but shall be Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. And the man responded saying, why is it that you ask of my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named that place Peniels for he said, I have seen God face to face but my life has been preserved. As the sun rose upon him, just as he crossed over Penuel, he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Let's pray together. Father, we have so much that we're looking forward to. We have new horizons for these students that have just finished high school and college. We have a, a full summer. Lord, we are, we are pregnant with expectation for what you will do for your good name. But whether it's in Baltimore or in Fairburn or in Kirkwood, whether it's inside of this building or out in the streets of our community, Lord, we know that your hand is guiding and your hand is directing. But Father, we also know that we cannot do this on our own. So Father, we ask this morning that as we look at the life of Jacob, as we look at this, this opportunity that you took and you wrestled with him and you blessed him, that, that we would see our dependence on you as necessary as Jacob now saw his. Father, we love you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that you have offered. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so here we go. You ready? We've got we to gotta move quick because we've got a meeting we've got to get to, okay? And, and by the way, ladies, I, I do want to encourage you. I know we're going to have this at the end. I do want to encourage you to stay and get the information about this Women of Joy trip. We'll have the video play at the end again. Um, 
just get the information. It's, it's a phenomenal weekend you will not want to miss. So please, um, here's what I'm, I can't really do that. I was about to say, I'll station people at the back door to make all the women to come back to the front so they can stay for the meeting. But I can't really do that. But just, just please stay. Just, just please stay. So here, here we are. The book of Genesis chapter 32. Jacob has just left his father-in-law Laban's house. He's taken his wives. He's taken all of his stuff. And he's getting out of town because Laban's a cheat. Laban realizes Jacob's gone and he took all this stuff um, and he didn't even tell me he was leaving so he pursued him and they come to this covenant of peace there uh, in, in, in the land and, and what ends up happening there is Laban goes back to Haran and Jacob continues on to the land of Canaan because God has already told him you are to go back to the land of your fathers you are supposed to go back so we pick up in Genesis chapter 32 and it says in Genesis chapter 32 Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him there and he saw Jacob when he saw them said this is God's camp so he named that place Naim. and Jacob sent messengers before to his brother Esau now if you don't know anything about Jacob and Esau if you haven't been with us the last few weeks Jacob and Esau are twin brothers Jacob was the younger brother and he cheated his older brother Esau first out of his birthright and then out of the blessing and he fled for his life because Esau said I'm going to kill that rascal he, man, he was done with his brother. So, so now Jacob's on his way back and the last thing he knew about his brother was, he's gonna kill me. Not, not, that, not that, oh, I could kill him for doing that, that we try to throw out there. Like literally he is going to actually physically take my life and kill me, kill me. So he sends messengers to Esau and the messengers go and say, my Lord Jacob, your brother is on his way back. The Lord has blessed him. He has wives. He has flocks. He has everything. He's, he's coming. Just, just so you know, he, he's coming. And it says there in verse 6 that the messengers returned to Jacob and said, we came to your brother Esau. And further, furthermore, he has come to meet you and 400 men are with him. That does not sound good for Jacob, does it? I love watching baseball. Ba baseball is just one, it, it, I, I love, I love going to the games, I love watching them on TV, I love watching the kids play baseball. But, but one of my favorite things in baseball is when the pitcher hits a batter and the bench is clear. I love that. I know you're not supposed to like all the, the blood and the violence and all this stuff. I love it. Because what ends up starting off something between these two guys everybody gets involved and what's even better is when the relief pitchers from the bullpen way out there in outfield who never see any action they know they're not going to pitch that day they come running in now I want you to imagine that you're the pitcher and you've just plunked a guy and they're charging the mound and your team stays behind it's just you and this whole team it's probably not going to end well for you now is it that's kind of the position Jacob is in now, I don't know how many people Jacob had traveling with him. Here, here's what I do know for sure. He had a couple of servants because he's just sent them on. He's got four wives and 11 sons. So he's got, at least got his family and a few others. And now he finds out that his brother who was going to murder him is bringing 400 men. A small army. It's no wonder that his reuniting with Esau is marked with fear. 
It's marked with fear. It says there in the book of, um, it says there in the book of Genesis um, that Esau comes with the one company, verse 8, and attacks it. Excuse me, sorry, sorry. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies and said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the other one that's left it will escape. And then he prays. O God of my father Abraham, of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness, of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For my staff only I have crossed this Jordan. With my staff only I have crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I Fear him. There is a terror in Jacob's life right now. And that terror's name is Esau. That is the wrath of a brother who has been spurned. And now as he's crossing over, as he's entering back into the homeland, he is brought face to face with the destruction he left behind by his great deception. He's anticipating this reuniting, but it's marked with fear. It is marked with fear. The messengers give a mess. The messengers go to Esau and say, "Hey, um, your brother Jacob's coming home, and he's rich. You know, suck up to the rich guy. He might bless you, right? All that bless. Just think of your Esau for a second. You just hear your brother's coming back. Your brother cheated you out of everything that was yours." And he has the nerve to send messengers to you to tell you, guess what? He's coming home and he is a wealthy, wealthy dude. Wealthy. He's rich. And the conflict rises. Here comes Esau. He's got 400 with him. It's no wonder that what's sandwiched in the middle of this entire thing is a prayer to God, reminding God of the promise and the command that he had given Jacob. You are to return to your homeland. You are to go home. I will be with you. There's the command. You go. Here's the promise. I am with you. I will prosper you. But God, I'm scared. Sometimes when God calls us to do something, it's going to terrify us obedience to the Lord God might be the most terrifying thing you ever encounter. Because when you step out into obedience to God, you and I, all of us, it's not just me, it's not just you, it's all of us, when we decide I am going to follow the Lord my God and I'm going to step out in obedience to him, we then, by necessity, place ourselves in his mercy. We're out of control. And that might be one of the most terrifying places you will ever be. Here's Jacob. Lord, you said, verse 12, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. But it's laden by fear. God, I've separated all I have into two companies. Furthermore, he goes on, verse 13 through the end, uh, 13 to 22, he starts sending gifts out there to Esau. Here's some, here some goats, here's some camels, here's some, here, take this. He's trying to appease the wrath of his brother. And that brings us to our passage that we've already read, this wrestling. 
He sent everyone across the stream and he's left alone on the banks of the river Javik. And there on the banks of the river, ja- river Javik, he is met by a man. Where he comes from, no one knows. But he appears. And it says there that a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Wrestled. And I'm I'm not talking about like WWE where it's fake and dramatic and it's all about the entertaining value. I mean actual, actual physical confrontation and if you thought WWE was real and I just spoiled it, I'm sorry. But this is real. This is taking place on the banks of this river. And in this passage, Jacob is wrestling with God and then his name is changed to Israel. Notice with me what happens. It says that he's wrestling and apparently Jacob was a pretty good wrestler. Now all this time that he's been deceiving people and, 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 and swindling people, he's apparently become a pretty good fighter, pretty good wrestler. He's a herdsman after all. He's one that has had to protect sheep and to protect flocks and had to work with his hands. He's got strength. And it says there that he was prevailing over this unidentified, unknown man. So much so... That the man, in order to get away, has to reach out and touch his hip. Touch him, right there. But it's a devastating blow. It maims and cripples Jacob for the rest of his life. For the decades beyond this, Jacob walked with a noticeable limp. Even so much that in verse 32 it says that for this reason the people of Israel do not eat that ligament, that tendon. When they're they're eating meat, they don't eat that because of what happened to Jacob. Now, I don't understand it. And, and, And some of you understand it enough to pay money to watch it, but... They've got this ultimate fighting championship thing, this cage match where these men, and some of those dudes, golly, I would not want them mad at me. I just wouldn't. I've seen them inflict some pain and some damage. But here's one thing I've never seen, and I don't think anybody in the world, save for Jacob, has ever seen this, that a single touch would dislocate a hip. The narrator here, Moses, as he's recording this, is not trying to pull any punches. He's not mincing any words. He literally says, uses the word, that the finger of the man reached out and simply touched the hip. Only God could do that. Only God could have such a powerful touch that it changes someone forever. God touches him. And Jacob, I believe, knew who had just touched him. That's why he asked for a blessing. I I know who has dislocated this. I know who has afflicted this. I, I need you to bless. And then the blessing comes in the name. Notice what he says. Verse 28, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but shall now be Israel. Later on in chapter 35, we see the official time that Jacob starts being referred to from that point as Israel. 
But here he says, your name will become Israel because you have striven, you have wrestled, you have fought with God. Now, if it wasn't bad enough for Jacob that his brother Esau was now coming with 400 men, he's got to fight his brother crippled, right? At least if you've got two good legs, you can run pretty fast. You can get away. Now he's not able to. And so Jacob has to march headlong into what God has called him to do in a way that he has never walked before with an, with an injury, with a weakness that is new that he has to adjust to and can only do so if this is the Lord God who has fought with him. And he says, I have seen the face of God and I have survived. Wow. Think about that. I have seen the face of God and I have survived no no one's seen the face of God and survived here's Jacob it says in chapter 33 and Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold Esau was coming and 400 men were with him it's reunion time right Here's Jacob on the banks of a river, having just wrestled with this, un this man who still didn't give him his name, still didn't tell him who, I, who he was. Jacob knew. He'd received the injury, he'd received the blessing. He named the place the face of God because he had seen the face of God and now he sees the face of his brother. I, I wish... I wish that in, in God's providence and God's sovereignty as he's given these words to Moses to write down that he would have also given what's going on in Jacob's heart right now. Because I've just seen God face to face. I know what God's called me to do but there is the face of the man who wants to murder me. And he's coming with a small army. I was wrestling with the Lord last night I now have a hip to where I cannot get away. What's going on? It says there, he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. <laughs> Poor Leah. <laughs> Still hadn't caught a break with Jacob, right? He passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Verse 4, and Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell upon his neck and kissed him and they wept. You see what God has just done? God has stepped in and, and shown Jacob, just trust me. Just rely on me. I'm taking away your strength. I'm taking away your dignity. I'm taking away everything because all of this scheming, all of this strategy, trying to appease this brother is not going to work without me. God will make us painfully aware of our own self-sufficiency in order to instigate instigate our reliance on him God will make us painfully aware of our own self-sufficiency we seek and we try to build it ourselves do it ourselves manipulate it ourselves control it ourselves but ultimately there are things that are too big for all of us 
You can brush your own teeth. You can, you can bathe yourself. You can dress yourself. You can drive yourself. But life is bigger than just those things. You need a God who is sufficient to do far and above anything you ever thought, believed, dreamed, or could even ask for. There are no self-made followers of Christ. And sometimes we wrestle and sometimes we strive and sometimes we end up suffering because God will make us painfully aware of our self-reliance in order to instigate our belief, our dependence on Him. The Christian life is a life of dependence. The Christian life is a life of surrender. You cannot love your spouse. You cannot love your children. You cannot love your neighbor the way God has asked you to without him. You can't even be nice to him without that. Some of you, the only reason you are nice to him is because you got Jesus in your heart. Because God will make you painfully aware of your self-reliance by putting difficult people in your life, in your family, in your house. I'm not talking about those strange cousins you only see at the re reunion. I'm talking about in your home. Because you can't do it by yourself. And, and, and the longer we wrestle, the more painful it can become and often does become. Because we are pressing against, we're kicking against the goats. We are trying our hardest to do it our way when God says, no, 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 you rest in my way. And sometimes he'll make us painfully aware of our self-sufficiency in order to instigate our dependence on him. So how does this connect? What do we do with this? First, we've got to see the system of the world. The system of the world is built on self-reliance. It, it just is. Everything that screams to you all day, every day, each and every day of the year, week, month, however long you live, says do it yourself, be yourself, you do you, build your own destiny, build your own dynasty, amass this, proclaim that, have this, do this. Everything you have to have is in your control. And be honest with you, God has put a lot of things in our control that we can do. But I can guarantee you this. If God has called you to it, you can't do it by yourself. That's why if God's called you to be a husband or a wife, you can't do it by yourself. If he's called you to be a parent, you can't do it by yourself. If he's called you to be part of a church, you can't do it by yourself. See, see. This world tries to tell you that if you just get that degree, if you just have that job, if you just have that many zeros at the end of your paycheck, if you just have this, so, so just strive for that, make for that, build for that, live for this, do th then you'll be okay. If you can just do it all yourself, then you don't need God, right? But that's not the way the gospel works. Because if I could save myself, Jesus died needlessly. If I could save either any one of you, Jesus died needlessly. The system of the world works contrary to God's plan and God's economy because it is built on self-reliance when God has made us painfully reliant on him. That's what Jacob's trying to do. Chapter 32, he's scheming. 
He's trying to send a good word to maybe appease his brother. Then he drops back and says, fear for prayer. Then he goes back, let me scheme a little bit more. Let me send gift after gift after gift after gift. Let me just keep throwing stuff at it. Isn't that what the world tells you to do? Just throw stuff at it, it'll be okay? And the second thing is, following God's direction necessitates or means that we have to rely on God's promises. That's ultimately what's at the heart of Jacob's prayer. God, you told me to go back to Canaan. And I am scared to death. But you said you wouldn't leave me. If you are going to follow Christ, if you are going to step out, whether it's on a trip to Baltimore, whether it's on a trip to CVS, if you're going to step out to where God has asked you to go, then you are going to have to rest and rely on the promises of God. And if you rest and rely on the promises of God, that means that if you're going to rest and rely on the promises of God, that means you've got to know what are the promises of God. The things that he has actually said that he would do. The things that he has actually promised he would handle. Not the things that we would love for him to have said. He never said, if you just trust me, I'm going to make all of you wealthy and healthy and wise. He never said that. Actually, what he, told Paul, what he told Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Right? I, I'm a dad. I love being a dad. That's like one of my three favorite things to, to be. Follower of Christ, a husband, and a dad. That's it. Contrary to popular belief, I am not the most muscular and physical fit person on the planet. But to my kids, I'm He-Man. And it could be something as little as opening a water bottle. To watch them struggle, they can't get it open. Daddy, can, can you do this? Yes, I can. And in my mind, I've got like the water splashing everywhere and like muscles bulging, like shirts popping and all this stuff. Yes, I can open that water bottle. There's a dependence on me that they have. Yeah, they could go 100,000 other places to get that water bottle opened. And so I'm not like God where I'm the only person that can do that for them. But they demonstrate a dependence to where if you're going to follow what God has called you to do, you've got to depend on his promise. Yes, work hard. Yes, apply everything that you have. Yes, do it all for the glory of God our Father, Christ our King. But not because of you, because of him. Following God's direction means that you have to trust God's promises. The third thing that Jacob shows us in this passage, and I believe some of you might be here right now, today. You can either strive with God or you can strive against God. Notice what's happening with Jacob. Right there on the riverbank of the Jabbok River. Jacob himself begins to wrestle. He begins to struggle. And the struggle is lasting all through the night. And it's at the end of the struggle that his name becomes 
your name is Jacob, but you shall now be called Israel, which means God fights or fights with God. Now, as a follower of Christ, I'm going to talk to the Christ followers right now. Those of you that have already said, I've made a profession of faith in Christ. I trust him. You're still in a position where you're either going to fight with God or you're going to fight against God. Some of you, you know God has been leading you somewhere. God has been placing it in your devotion time, in your Sunday school time, in your Sunday morning worship time. He's been placing it in your heart time and time again. Conversations with strangers that just appear out of nowhere where you know God has put that in my life yet again, but you are resisting and you're wondering why there is struggle all around you because you're fighting against God. Some of you, God is raising up to be the next great preacher, the next great pastor, the next great ministry leader. Some of you, God is just simply asking to give. Some of you, God is just simply asking, be interested in missions. Some of you, God is just asking, be a better church member, a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better daughter, a better son. And and you block it. And you're wrestling and you're wrestling and the struggle is going on and the struggle is going on and the struggle because you're wrestling against God. Or you surrender to God and he fights for you. See, when, when Jacob was maimed and unable to win the fight, he was able to see the victory of the Lord when his brother hugged and kissed him. The fear melted away. Let, let, let me ask you if that's you, if, you, if you're just seeing sense and struggle all around, just give up the fight. Surrender to the God that loves you, the God that's calling you, the God that's drawing you and wooing you uh, with, with such a great love and compassion. And, and sense his victory, feel his victory. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. Maybe you would identify yourself as, uh, I, you know, I believe some things about the Bible. I've heard about Jesus, I know. Or, or maybe this whole thing's new to you. And it's consistently one step forward, two steps back. You have felt the pull of the cross on your heart. And you're like, I don't know how to process what you just said. Let me unpack it for you. You hear a message about death and resurrection. You hear a message about the love of God and something just catches in your heart. Or something said about faith and you're like, dude, I don't even know that I have faith. That's the pull of the Spirit of God opening your eyes to what He is doing. And every time you step and walk away, you're struggling and fighting against God. And and, and you're, you're allowing yourself to be shackled by unbelief and by doubt. And it's creating this struggle and it's creating some bitterness. And it might even be affecting the relationships around you. And the night is trudging on and the struggle is growing and the struggle is deepening. And it's still happening and it's still happening. Let me just ask you, come give it to Christ. Christ Jesus is the only one that loved you enough to die for you for eternity. Some of you might take a bullet or a knife for a friend, a neighbor, a buddy, a child, a husband, a wife, but you're not going to die for them for eternity. You're not going to go into hell and conquer it on behalf of somebody else because you can't. But Jesus loved you that much that he did. Don't fight against him. Let him fight with you. And then the last connection that we make. 
is that a new name, a new name must be accompanied by a transformed life. That's the thing about these covenants that God makes with people. Is they, they, there's a symbol, there's a sign, and then there's a name change. Your name was Jacob, great deceiver, but now you are one the Lord is fighting with. And what was marked by Jacob was a life of peace. No longer seeking to, 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 to sway people, to cheat people, to dissuade people. It was peace to walk with him. He even offers it for Esau, please just take some of this. Let me love on you. And Esau says, no, 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 just come be my brother. It was a life marked by worship, or as Paul says over in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17. As Paul's describing this, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you have professed faith in Christ, but your life does not look any different than it did before, you've got to ask, what was your profession about? Because when you take on the name of Christ, when you have Christian, little Christ, appended to your name, to your identity, you've been born into his family, and so your life should demonstrate that transformation. You should have been dead, but now you're alive. Maybe God saved you out of church life. You used to be a church rule follower. Got to be there this time, this time, this time. Have this book and that book and read this and invite this person. And it's all about checking the boxes in church life. But now you sense the freedom. Allow the transformation of the gospel. Maybe your story is a lot darker than that. Maybe you have ridiculous sin in your past. All sin is ridiculous. So that's true of all of us. But that we would walk in a way that we would say, God has transformed us. He's given us his name. Well, I've wrestled with him. Now I'm fighting alongside of him as he's winning my battles because he has transformed me. The old has passed away. In Christ, you're new. Walk in the newness of life.